This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Hamilton City Council approving the hiring of more HSR drivers in an effort to stem the problem of bus shortages that have left some riders stranded by the side of the road. Acting on a motion from Mayor Fred Eisenberger made in response to revelations that some current drivers are working 68-hour weeks and that the HSR canceled 589 buses on 28 routes in October because of driver absences, the city is going to hire 58 new bus drivers. You heard all the news on the news this morning on CHML. Now, this move is going to increase the complement to 542 drivers. That's going to be up from the current 484. And you're probably thinking dollars and cents? Well, the move is going to cost... More than $3.9 million, but that's less than the $4.7 million in overtime the city is currently spending. Let's bring in our first guest, Mayor Fred Eisenberger, who joins us on the show. Mayor Fred, good morning. Good morning, Rick. 58 new HSR drivers are being hired. How did 58 become the number? How did you get there? Well, actually, that's the that's the maximum amount. So they're, what they're asking for is a <clears throat> authorization to uh, to increase their complement as as required. Uh, that's the maximum amount that um, may occur, but that's certainly not the amount that uh, that uh, is kind of locked into stone. So they just want to have the flexibility. So as the need arises, if uh, if uh, it looks like they're uh, short a staff person, they can pull a staff person in. And as you as you pointed out, Rick, uh, this is. Uh, it's completely unacceptable, and uh, I think on behalf of myself and uh, our entire city council that uh, that our, our bus service, as a result of whatever is going on in the uh, in the uh, the uh, the HSR uh, complement uh, staffing complement, uh, is leaving people behind at the curb or ca- cancellation of buses entirely. Uh, that is just unacceptable. We need a reliable, predictable, and on time, on schedule uh, bus service. And uh, we also don't need to be burning out uh, our, our employees. And even though traditionally 60 hours has been, uh, you know, a, a tradition in the transit industry because of the split shifts and all of the variations that have to happen as a result of uh, how, how the work is done, uh, it is, uh, in my view, an unacceptable, uh, unacceptable long period of time and causes us to pay significant amounts of overtime at time and a half. So as you pointed out, uh, the, the very reason that this is actually a good investment is that when it all shakes out, we're actually going to save about $750,000 on the budget itself. If 58 is the maximum, what's the minimum? Uh, well, whatever the requirement is. So so right now they're adding uh, 14 uh, coming up uh, shortly, so for the, the next coming month. And uh, and we'll pull, be pulling in, I believe, another 23 uh, there, shortly thereafter. Of course, it takes time to, uh, to train up uh, drivers and uh, get them into place. So uh, and 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 uh, we'll we'll see how the need uh, gets addressed as uh, as time goes on. So it's not uh, let's bring in 58 right away. It's how how do we ramp it up and how do we adjust the overtime and see how that balances out over time. And so we'll have our staff report back to us in about three months to see how things are going. But uh, the anticipation is, and as I, I pointed out a minute ago, uh, you know our our intention is to ensure that uh, when a, a route is scheduled, that the uh, the route is delivered. And uh, I think uh, we're going to encourage all of our ATU drivers that do a spectacular job for us day to day uh, to, uh, you know, renew their commitment to ensuring that that happens and uh, work with the uh, union leadership to uh, to make sure that we can put uh, processes in place to deal with the uh, the absenteeisms, whatever the cause, 
make sure that we can get those numbers down and accommodate people and make sure that we can get the uh, service delivered on the street as we as we should. We're chatting with uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Zamprin in for Bill this week. Being 58 drivers or maximum of 58 drivers um, uh, and, and all these buses being late or, or non-existent, you know, we're talking about 589 buses on 28 routes, people stranded mm-hmm. on the road wondering where their bus is. Does that mean that the city miscalculated the number of drivers that were needed or, or was this mismanaged? How, do, how did this all come apart? Well, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to get into kind of nitty gritty and pointing fingers. I mean, there have been some issues on the uh, on the on the staffing side. There have been some issues on the uh, the HSR management side, uh, issues that we're addressing. And uh, you know, I think uh, you know, getting into that uh, level of detail right now is probably not going to be helpful. Uh, what is helpful, though, is that uh, that we're seeing uh, collaboration and cooperation from our uh, union leadership, and that's uh, absolutely necessary. Uh, we've had some uh, finger pointing on their part in the, in the last little while, which I think was unfortunate uh, and unfair, to be honest. Uh, and uh, and the bottom line is that there has been a change uh, in some management structure that uh, has uh, has brought forward to council and to uh, to our city staff that uh, accountability has not been the very best in terms of the uh, oversight on the the entire system and uh, and employees and uh, and accountability is now uh, at the forefront and that's certainly a change and uh, that that potentially could cause some some uh, ruffles uh, feathers to be ruffled in the in the system and in in terms of operations and uh, and and uh, ATU members and so uh, that's a change they're going to uh, they're going to have to accept and uh, you know what in any department in our city uh, accountability is uh, priority number one. Uh, we expect people to uh, to perform their duties and uh, and uh, and do them successfully as they and lion's share of our employees do, and uh, and deliver the services uh, on time and as scheduled. So, we uh, we will encourage uh, continued collaboration to uh, get us on to uh, I think a working a good working path that uh, we've always had in the past that has had a bit of a hiccup in the last. Uh, six or seven months or so. How confident are you that uh, this hiring spree is going to eliminate the need for some of those 68 work weeks, 68 hour work weeks? Yeah, I mean, it's going to, uh, it's going to reduce uh, significantly. And I think, you know, there's always potentially a need for some overtime, you know, things happen and people uh, have emergencies in their lives and, uh, you know, we have schedules to, to, to maintain. So there, there's likely to still to be a little bit of overtime, but uh, this is going to significantly reduce that. And uh, make make sure that uh, most of our uh, transit employees are working regular hours as opposed to 60-hour work weeks. And uh, and uh, uh, in, in, on the occasion that we do need the overtime for emerging uh, you know needs, it's still available to us if uh, if required. So I think that's not an that's not an unreasonable expectation to suggest that we will totally eliminate uh, uh, overtime is uh, certainly not a reasonable scenario in any department in the city. Uh, on occasion, we need to backfill and bring people in because of illnesses or accommodations or uh, you know things that happen in people's lives, and uh, it's a reasonable thing to do rather than bring in uh, new employees. So it is not our top wish to uh, to continue to bring uh, new new uh, you know cost employees into the organization, but when the need arises, we have to address that need, and we're doing that through this change. How does Hamilton compare in terms of the number of drivers or the number of buses? How do we compare to other cities of similar size? Are we going to be on par now with these new hires? 
Yeah, I think we're uh, I think we're in uh, kind of the middle of the pack in terms of uh, you know even on uh, on the way we operate the facility currently uh, you know this is pretty much a, a standard uh, operating procedure for many of the transit uh, services in uh, in Ontario for sure in Toronto that you know overtime has been a pretty critical part of uh, how they continue to operate their systems uh, but uh, you know I would say that it's not uh, not something that is sustainable. Uh, it's something that I think the, it needs to change. I would say we're in the middle of the pack in terms of uh, how we've uh, you know ma- managed that over uh, over time. Uh, so uh, this will certainly put us closer to the top of the pack in terms of how we manage our employees in a more reasonable, more reasonable way in terms of hours uh, hours worked. And I think that's a, that's a fair and reasonable thing to do. And if you know you can only imagine, uh, Rick, that uh, you know if any of us work a sixty hour work week. Uh, that is uh, stressful and, and certainly not sustainable over time, and uh, we need the majority of our employees working at uh, regular time, at uh, you know regular forty-hour work weeks, with uh, you know without an, an overdue amount of uh, overtime, so that uh, they can have a sensible work-life balance as well as not be stressed out on the job that they do each and every day. Fred Eisenberger, Mayor of the City of Hamilton, our guest here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Uh, just a couple more minutes with the Mayor. And one question that's a little off to- or a lot off topic, really. Uh, the Hamilton mm-hmm. Conservation Authority approving raising admission and, and parking fees to help offset the minimum wage hike to $14 an hour come January 1st. Your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, uh, you know, there are changes coming our way and uh and you know finding finding ways and means to uh, to deal with that on a, on a budgetary process is something that we're all going to face uh, in our community i'm a i'm a supporter of uh increasing the uh the living wage in in our communities or the minimum wage i think that's a positive step to help with our poverty issues i think it's a cost saving measure globally uh but does cause uh, some challenges <coughs> in in all of our budgets and uh and I'm sure in, in, a, in a lot of businesses in our community, and uh, we'll have to find ways to manage that. And uh, this is one step. I wasn't aware that this was happening. I'm not a member of the Conservation Authority Board, but, you know, we, uh, you know in lieu of doing that, there's always uh, the need to then look for other, other tools to, uh, to raise the necessary dollars to keep our systems uh, going, and especially in the green spaces that are particularly difficult to manage and mostly are, are free. And so, uh, you know, having folks contribute a little bit, I don't think is a particularly harmful thing, but I know it'll provoke, uh, you know, propose some challenges, no question. Uh, obviously, from a city standpoint, uh, we, we could possibly, I guess, see similar hikes at local ice rinks and the like? Uh, we, I, I don't think we're going to have significant increases this year. I think it'll be inflationary. Um, uh, you know, we, we don't tend to have a lot of part-time uh, employees in the city of Hamilton for those kinds of services. So I don't suspect that there'll be a significant change there. I, I think the uh, the rate budget is actually coming to us uh, on Friday, I believe, or maybe uh, early next week. And uh, there aren't any significant changes other than some inflationary uh, cost increases. So inflation's running at about 1.5%. So I, can th- I would expect that, generally speaking, on fares and rates, on uh, user fees, uh, that's pretty much where we'll probably end up in terms of increase. That's good news. Mayor Fred, thanks for the time today. Okay, Rick. Have a great day. You too. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joining us uh, on the line. Um, After the news at 9.30, we're going to get the perspective uh, from the other side, and that is uh, the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107, Eric Tuck. Got to be some good news in the hallways uh, of of the ATU because, hey, more drivers, more jobs, uh, less stress for drivers. 
uh, yeah, less overtime, but I think in the long term, everyone is going to benefit from this decision to hire a maximum of 58 new HSR drivers. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. November is Diabetes Awareness Month, and uh, this coming Tuesday, which is uh, November 14th, is World Diabetes Day. And with more than 1,800 diabetes healthcare professionals in attendance at a conference in Edmonton, Dr. Gregory Steinberg from McMaster University was named the Young Scientist of the Year for his contribution to diabetes research. And Dr. Steinberg joins us now. Dr. Steinberg, how are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Um, I have to ask, how old are you if you're the youngest scientist of the year? <laughs> I don't, I'm not the youngest scientist. I am the young, the young, scientist. young scientist, though. <laughs> and I am still fairly young. I'm uh, 41. Okay, excellent. Uh, well, you are younger uh, as well uh, than the active, uh, oldest active speed skater in North America. And that, that, that's still to come on the show here, though. Uh, congratulations on the award. How does it feel to win? Oh, it's a great honor, obviously, uh, to be recognized by your peers and given the great researchers from across Canada studying diabetes. It's a, it's, it is a great honor. Uh, this was in honor of your contribution to diabetes research. So tell us a little bit about your work. What are you, uh, what are you doing? Well, as a, as a leader of the research program in uh, metabolism, obesity, and diabetes research here at uh, McMaster, in the Faculty of Health Science, our research is really interested in understanding how our body metabolizes fat and sugar. And uh, our research is focused on how these uh, cellular energy sensors detect the amount of uh, fat and sugar that's in the body and how it then goes on to use it. So how is our body, how are our bodies, metabolizing fat and sugar? My guess is not very well. Well, it depends. Uh, you know, on one side of the equation of the fuel gauge per se, uh, these cellular energy sensors get switched on when we exercise and with diabetes medications such as metformin. And uh, this uh, elicits a change in the way we utilize that fat and sugar, which is a positive change. Uh, on the flip side, as people, uh, if we consume too many calories, over a long period of time or uh, with the development of type 2 diabetes, these fuel sensors get dialed back. And uh, it's a situation where we always have too much fuel around. And this then leads to uh, diabetes as well as other complications such as cardiovascular disease and uh, potentially other cancers, which are so common with diabetes. So yet another example of uh, being more active is going to uh, cause a much less uh, chance of you getting diabetes. Well, absolutely. Uh, We know that uh, being active is an important component uh, to a healthy lifestyle. Uh, It can delay, we know that it can delay the development of type 2 diabetes in many people. Uh, And this isn't just because of uh, the amount of uh, calories you're expending, but because it's removing this fat and sugar from the circulation and uh, putting it into places uh, where it won't cause uh, harm. So regarding your research, do you have uh, uh, human test subjects who are, who, are, who are just lazing on the couch and others who are active, and then you're kind of following on how these sensors are operating? Yeah, so a lot of our work started out in mice and uh, in cell systems where we generated these 
mice that were genetically identical except for uh, the fact that we removed a single enzyme from their muscles. And uh, this enzyme called the AMP kinase enzyme uh, is found in all cells of the body. But when we removed it from the muscles, these mice looked perfectly normal. But uh, when they went to go run on the wheels, they immediately got tired and just uh, would just really rock back and forth. And uh, we thought that was really interesting that if you didn't have this enzyme in your muscles that you couldn't exercise and you were otherwise normal, but you were just a, a couch potato per se. And uh, this is a really proved that this enzyme is critical for how our responses to exercise. And we went on to show later that this is also important in uh, immune cells as well as the liver and other tissues. Uh, we are currently doing studies in humans though uh, in which we're looking at different the impact of exercise on energy expenditure and particularly how we're able to turn on our uh, metabolic furnace which is known as brown adipose tissue. So the impact of exercise, so the more we exercise, the more of these sensors are firing? Is that basically how it works in a nutshell? Yeah, absolutely. Exercise switches on these energy sensors, and, and then this removes the excess gl glucose and fat from the system and uh, causes it to be utilized. So how long are these humans being tested, or have you come to the conclusion of, okay, we, we have our, 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 our conclusion to this, this study, now we can uh, go to the next step? Yeah, the, I mean, the, uh, the study is just a cross-sectional study in which we're looking at uh, how a number of variables, one of them being exercise, impacts our, uh, uh, our brown adipose tissue uh, activity. And uh, these studies are, will be ongoing in the future as well as, uh, and are, are being extended to children as well, uh, 8 to 10-year-old boys where we're also interested in measuring the metabolic activity of brown fat and its relation to activity levels as well as liver fat. Uh, eight to ten-year-old boys, much more active than 40-year-old guys, right? Well, we would hope so, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it, given the statistics, uh, we know that many uh, children these days actually aren't being that as, as active as we'd like, and uh, this is really contributing to the huge spike in uh, childhood obesity rates, which will precede the development of type 2 diabetes in, these, uh, in this population as the years go on. We're chatting with uh, Dr. Gregory Steinberg from McMaster University, uh, named the Young Scientist of the Year for his contribution to diabetes research. Uh, is there a next step towards uh, uh, your research after you compile all this information? Yeah, well, I mean, we know that uh, certainly exercise is good for us. We know that uh, turning on this enzyme is good for us, this AMP kinase. So, a major challenge, uh, although we prefer that everyone take on an active lifestyle, uh, we know that in many situations that's not possible. So uh, we and many other groups are developing uh, uh, therapies which will switch on the enzyme uh, to mimic the effects of exercise, mimic at least part of the effects of exercise to improve metabolic health. And this is something that uh, we and many other groups have been working on for the last few years. You probably know this question's coming, but uh, for those who hate exercise, they or, or, or they can't do it because there are cases of that, they're going to ask, is there a pill that you can manufacture that we can just take and we're going to be healthy as uh, an ox? Well, that's a, you know, we've done this in mice where we've given them a pill and we can increase their exercise capacity. 
they run better. They be, take on a, a phenotype where uh, very similar to a mouse that had been trained on a treadmill. Uh, and and uh, if we look at their glucose control, we can see that they are protected from developing the early signs of diabetes. Um, so in, at least in mice, we can do that. Uh, there's also been studies in other animal systems where we can do that. Whether or not this can be done in humans uh, safely is uh, yet, to be, uh, yet to be seen. Because one of the challenges is uh, uh, exercise does so many p other positive things besides uh, just working on the muscle. So uh, whether we can safely uh, adapt this system to uh, humans is, is yet to be seen, but it's certainly something we and many other groups are looking into. Talked a lot about uh, your research over the last uh, several minutes. How did it all start, though? I mean, w when you when you sat down and thought, okay, I want to research uh, uh, diabetes here, uh, I mean, how did you get put pen to paper or start typing out uh, what your plan was going to be? What was the inspiration? Yeah, well, that's a that's a great question. You know, I as a uh, young child uh, growing up in Brantford, Ontario, I wasn't uh, specifically thinking about. Uh, this aspect of biology. I was thinking about just a general biology interested in animals and how they worked. And as an athlete, uh, I was a swimmer and a triathlete. I became interested in exercise physiology and sort of factors controlling uh, my own uh, exercise performance. And, and this is what really attracted me to this area, that uh, these energy sensors could be very important for uh, controlling not just exercise capacity, but on the flip side, uh, which is really the opposite of an elite athlete, uh, potential uh, over-nutrition conditions such as obesity and diabetes, and being able to mimic some of the effects of exercise might be beneficial. And that's really where the thought process came from, uh, drawing on my experience in the exercise field and uh, thinking about uh, whether we could apply some of these uh, positive effects at the molecular level uh, to uh, helping people with diabetes. Are other similar studies being conducted? Yeah, absolutely. This is a hugely uh, competitive area. I mean, when I started working on the area in uh, 2000 uh, or 2001, there were maybe about 20 papers a year published in this area. Now there's uh, over 20 papers a day published in this area. So it's, uh, it's a hugely competitive area that uh, people around the world are working on, and uh, it's, it's really important we uh, uh, stay at the forefront of this area by receiving uh, the appropriate funding levels to get to, there, to, that, uh, to compete at the global level. We're talking with uh, Dr. Gregory Steinberg from McMaster University, named the Young Scientist of the Year for his contribution to diabetes research here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. You mentioned it being a competitive atmosphere. Is the competition, uh, or at least the race, uh, the finish line being first to a finding or, or a, uh, an aha kind of moment? Well, you know, being first is nice, uh, but being right is more important. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is sort of... Uh, uh, having really robust data that's reproducible is obviously the most important uh, aspect of any scientific uh, finding. And uh, clearly, it's a, to be, do that, uh, you need to develop a, a program that covers multiple aspects of uh, biology. And uh, 
we we tend to do that pretty well here at McMaster, where we work very closely with both the the clinical research groups, uh, studying uh, adults as well as children, and uh, within the Metabolism, Obesity, and Diabetes Research Center, as well as back to uh, the basic basic scientific questions that. Uh, uh, many of our, our colleagues work on. What kind of attention or input has Health Canada or the federal, even provincial governments, uh, paid to to this research? Well, the you know the the research uh, has been recognized uh, at multiple levels, certainly with the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, uh, uh, as well as uh, other funding agencies, uh, the American Diabetes Association has also recognized our research contributions in this area, which has uh, been really nice to see that uh, recognition from multiple sources. We know that millions of Canadians and million, millions more people around the world uh, suffer from diabetes. Many have pre-diabetes. Um, is, is this type of research going to make a dent in the next couple of years, or is this something that's way off in the distance? No, I can, you know, we've been working on it for many years now, and uh, uh, we've known about this, uh, these fuel sensors as pe- being potentially important for having an impact on uh, diabetes for many years. Uh, I guess getting a way to safely target uh, these fuel sensors is the real challenge, uh, and, that, and this is coming along very uh, Coming, proceeding very well, and many of these medications are already uh, into clinical trials. So it's something that uh, should be uh, helping people with diabetes in the near future. Funding also still a challenge. Well, the, yeah, that's a that's a great question. You, you know, the fe- the funding levels have really been fixed uh, for much of the last decade, and uh, despite the current government's. Uh, discussion points about constantly wanting to support innovation and discovery. Uh, they have yet to really, uh, despite spending money in many other places, have yet to make any major commitment to funding basic scientific research or uh, innovation in this country. So how have you closed the gap? Are you doing car washes and bake sales? Or <laughs> Well, you know, we, uh, we try our best to continue to uh, develop our program. Uh, clearly, uh, it's challenging given the international competitive nature of the field where many countries are spending much more than Canada on uh, research. Uh, apart from the funding, is there another challenge that, that has to be addressed or has to be identified? No, I, you know, I think the funding is the major issue mm-hmm. uh, in Canada right now. We have, the, we have the great people, we have the great infrastructure. Uh, what we're lacking right now is operating funds to do the research which we need to do to uh, compete at an international level. Well, we all know that great work is being done uh, at McMaster University. There's a host of amazing researchers in in a variety of fields, and Dr. Gregory Steinberg, you being among them, obviously uh, honored with the Young Scientist of the Year Award. Uh, Congratulations on that. Keep keep up the great work, and uh, I'm sure we'll uh, see some uh, amazing discoveries down the road. Well, thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. You too. Dr. Gregory Steinberg, professor, and uh, I'd love to see this on his business card, professor in the Division of Endocrinology, Department of Medicine, Canada Research Chair in Metabolism and Obesity, J. Bruce Duncan Chair in Metabolic Diseases, co-director, Metabolism and Childhood Obesity Research Program at McMaster University. (laughs) Wowzers! Imagine that business card. There's no way that is a business card size. If it is, the font is minuscule.
Great to have him on. Uh, awesome research, and uh, obviously it is a field that is very much in need of more research and development and anything that can help the millions upon millions of Canadians and those around the world, really, who have uh, diabetes, living with diabetes or pre-diabetes, and we know that that number is only going to grow. Uh, studies like this, initiatives like this are only going to help. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, as Canadians prepare to mark Remembrance Day, a new survey by Statistics Canada suggests a growing number of veterans are having a hard time adjusting to post-military life. The survey was conducted last year, and it found that one in three veterans had a difficult or very difficult transition from military to civilian life. 42% of veterans who retired between 2012 and 2015 reported problems significantly more than the 29% of those who retired before 2012. More than 2,700 former regular forces members responded to the survey, which is conducted every three years. Now, the survey did not provide details on why new veterans were more likely to experience hardship though service in Afghanistan and less than 10 years in uniform were factors associated with a difficult adjustment. Let's bring in Jonathan Wade, Afghan vet and blogger with ConflictObserver.com. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you? Not too bad at all. Maybe a a refresher on, on your military life. What did you get to do? Yeah, I uh, I served 14 years uh, with uh, 3rd Battalion Royal 22nd Regiment here in Quebec. Uh, deployed to Afghanistan in 2009. Uh, I was embedded with the Afghan National Army, and I deployed to Haiti in uh, 2010, uh, right after the earthquake. And then I got medically discharged in 2014 uh, due to a post-traumatic stress disorder, and I have, I have yet been able to uh, find a decent uh, job so it's pretty relevant for me as well, this uh, this survey. Most definitely. How, how would you describe your life as uh, a member of the Canadian Armed Forces? Uh, my life was pretty good. I mean, we were, um, we were well paid. We had good uh, benefits. Uh, the work was super fun. I mean, you know, when you, when you, uh, when you join the Army, uh, normally it's because you want to really do that. I've been wanting to join the Army since I was five years old, playing with G.I. Joes. So, <laughs> you know, every, yeah, pretty much. So everything was going super well on the on uh, on my career. I uh, really loved the job and everything. And then I deployed in 2009 to Afghanistan, um, saw a lot of atrocities, uh, deployed to Haiti uh, shortly after, a few months after, actually, just after my post-deployment uh, vacations. And then uh, about few months afterwards i started having nightmares and everything so i just decided to go uh you know see uh all the psychologists and everything and then in, it uh basically got me uh medically discharged from the military was there a trigger for these nightmares not really i mean um i think it just comes with time uh it really depends on what you've been doing and i'm a big advocate on 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 ptsd where uh, you know, it depends on on the on, on the type of personality you have. So, you know, a per, a different persons might have different reactions in different scenarios. So, you know, it's really hard to find those triggers, uh, and it's really hard to you know find the exact uh, spot where 
you started having those traumas. How soon did you seek help once once these nightmares started, once you were having difficulty? It was really, really fast because, hmm. um, honestly, I started having those nightmares, and as many veterans did, I started heavily drinking just to try and wash them away. It didn't work, of course. So uh, one of my best friends actually told me, he was like, hey, Jonathan, maybe it's time for you to go see uh, the doctor or something. So basically, I went the next morning, and I was taken care of uh, here in uh, Valcartier, Quebec. And I was taken care of really, really fast because, you know, we were in between two deployments and um, from the 09 and the 2010 that uh, Valcartier did. So there was not a whole lot of people uh, feeling those symptoms yet. But, yeah, so I had no issues getting treatments. I've been really, really uh, well taken care of. And then uh, once I left the Army, uh, I, I I went to uh, other clinics, and I've been uh, seeing them uh, since. I don't want to focus too much on the nightmares, although I do have one more question just because it is interesting. Was it was it the same thing all the time, or was it different? No, it was one, uh, one uh, particular nightmare where... I don't mind. I really don't mind talking about it anymore. Okay. But I was I was uh, I was on patrol with the Afghan National Army, and one of their engineers was sweeping. So basically, every morning we were sweeping the roads for IEDs. Uh, they were doing it. We were just there to provide them with support. And uh, that morning it was going really fast, and the ANA engineer uh, blew up on an IED, blew up in pieces, and it was about twenty feet in front of me. So that's exactly when it triggered. Uh, or that's what I believe. And then that was three weeks um, after I got in deployment. And then throughout the rest of the deployment, because I stayed there, uh, I've seen a lot of uh, dead kids, uh, wounded kids, uh, dead Afghanis. And fortunately, uh, we had no Canadian casualties in theater. So um, for us, for my team, because we were eight Canadians, but we went through a lot of uh, uh, Afghani uh, casualties, whether it's soldiers or civilians. So all of this combined together uh, made me uh, do uh, nightmares. But that particular scenario was the one I think uh, made me uh, what I am right now. We're chatting with uh, Jonathan Wade, uh, Afghanistan veteran, also uh, represented and served our nation uh, well in Haiti, uh, talking about a new survey from Statistics Canada suggesting that a number of veterans, particularly newer ones, have a hard time adjusting to post-military life. More than 2,700 former uh, combat members responded to the survey. Um, you mentioned off the top it's it's hard to, to, to uh, land a job or, or, or keep it for a while. Um, how are you coping with this? What are you doing? Well, uh, you know, once we get out, we have uh, disabilities and with uh, with CISIP and uh, Veterans Affairs. So, you know, they've been uh, really good uh, making sure we're financially stable. Uh, but the big problem, I think, uh, with job retention or finding work is kind of due to the, the type of salaries that we get while we're, we're uh, in the military, where, you know, as a corporal, you get $65,000 a year. And depending on your trade, because I was an infantryman, so there's not really anything related to the civilian life. I mean, as an infantryman, you're, you're basically taught how to uh, close in and kill the enemy. So, you know, there's not a whole lot of skills that can be transferred to the, to the civilian world. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to figure out what kind of career you want to do 
after serving a certain amount of years in the Army because uh, you've been taught to do your job super well. You've been doing it, and you've been doing it for a certain numbers of years, uh, number of years uh, where you know uh, it's not really relevant to the civilian world. So many combat arms veterans that are transitioning from, from, the, the civil, from the military to the civilian world have many, many issues due to that, just because of education, um, because of uh, their lack of uh, patience, And, you know, in the civilian world, uh, sometimes, you know, it's, it's completely different than from the, from the military, where uh, in the military, it's all about helping each other. And in many uh, aspects of the civilian work, it's always competition between each other. So that's really hard for a veteran that has been, that has seen combat, that has been uh, focusing on helping their, you know, brothers and sisters in arms, and then get to the civilian world, world where they're basically by themselves all the time. What would you recommend to to the government to do in in your situation? And obviously, there's probably hundreds, if not thousands, of others in a similar situation. What would you urge the government to do for you guys? Well, first, I mean, uh, I would urge the government to make sure that we're not uh, medically discharged if, if if we can still uh, occupy some sort of administration or administrative po- uh, job in within the military. What really bothers me is the fact that uh, I've seen numerous soldiers that have been serving for more than 20 years that never deployed, never, ever deployed. So, you know, these, uh, these soldiers have been serving their country. That's fine. But they have been making sure that they're not deployed. Meanwhile, a wounded veteran that has been deploying one, two, three, four, five, whatever the amount of time that he's been deploying uh, is being... Uh, medically discharged from the military where, you know, instead of being uh, offered a much more administrative position where you could still work in the army and the military environment uh, without being deployed. But if you go to the civilian world, I know the liberal government recently announced that they're going to start paying for university uh, studies, pretty much the same as the GI Bill in the U.S. That will greatly help because Um, you know, me, after serving 14 years uh, as an infantryman, uh, I'm 35 years old. My knees, my back, my everything is pretty much in a really bad shape. So whenever it comes to physical work, I can't really do it because I'm, I get tired really quick and, you know, I, I'm hurting. So I've been trying to reach out to VAC and the CISIP to pay for university, uh, university studies, you know, to, to become a, 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 you know, a civilian that works in a, a different environment but still contribute to the society. And I've always been told that it's impossible, that they will pay for a trade job, but they will not pay for university. So just having the government starting paying university studies will actually help many, many veterans to, you know, do some sort of transition from the military to the, uh, to the civilian world. But unfortunately, uh, it's not going to be a fit for everyone. But just quickly, at the, at the end of the day, uh, there's still support for uh, veterans that are not able to work uh, at all. Uh, last question for you because we're running out of time here. Uh, and it might sound like a silly one, but I think in this instance it kind of makes sense. So what do you want to be when you grow up <laughs> now that your military <laughs> career is over? Yeah, well, right now, actually, I'm uh, paying for my own studies. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm studying Russian, so I'll be trilingual. Hmm. Uh, what I'd like to do is still contribute to the government. So 
you know, um, I'm trying to, you know, work towards a degree where I could work for Global Affairs Canada or, you know, still be a, a, a civilian that works for my country that still contributes to the safety, the security and the prosperity, prosperity of my country. And yeah, that's pretty much what I want to do. Um, but it's hard. It's really, really hard, uh, you know, being 35 years old and pretty much do a 180 on your career. But it's, it's, it's still doable, and the government has been uh, really good helping me with benefits and everything. Well, we're urging you to keep on fighting. We thank you for your service for our country, that's for sure. Jonathan, thanks for the time, and uh, best of luck to you. Thank you very much for uh, the interview. I really appreciate it. Jonathan Wade, a blogger with ConflictObserver.com. You can check him out there. Afghanistan war veteran, also served in Haiti as well. A bit of an eye-opener on what a, uh, a newer war vet, after spending 14 years with the armed services, what a newer war veteran is going through post-military um, life. Uh, very interesting. And you know what? If the government comes up with a plan to educate our veterans once they do come back and, and they're... And they're uh, I guess, in the battle careers are over, uh, I think that'd be a tremendous thing. Tremendous thing. If it's not 100% funding for education, every little bit helps. I'd be, I'd be for that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.